This morning, if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Esther, chapter 1, comes right before Job. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job. So open up to the middle of your Bible, turn left a little bit. You'll find it. A few years ago, when we did the brief overview of every book of the Bible, we actually skipped over Esther. And that was not intentional. I just ran out of Sundays. And because I'm OCD, we just had to keep going. So I didn't want you to think that I don't love Esther. And we haven't been in the Old Testament since we looked at the book of Judges last summer. So I thought we would walk our way systematically through the Old Testament historical narrative book of Esther. The subtitle is, A Quiet God Gets Loud Glory, which is not original to me. One of our church members actually came up with that name. And the reason we say that is because one of the most famous parts of the book of Esther is that God is never explicitly mentioned in the book. You'll never find the term God, Yahweh, Jehovah, anywhere in the book of Esther. So, literally, in this book, a quiet God gets loud glory. Anytime we start a new book, especially books in the Old Testament, we need to go back and understand where does Esther fit in the grand scheme of the storyline of the Bible. So let me set the historical context for you before we dig into chapter 1. The Jewish people were carried away into Babylon having been exiled from their homeland, from the promised land. And in fact, King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., comes in, destroys the temple, ransacks Jerusalem, and exiles the Jewish people, the Israelites, out of the promised land into Babylon. But this exile ultimately should not have been a surprise to ancient Israel. If you go back and you look in Deuteronomy chapter 28, in that part of the book where Moses is giving the blessings of obeying the law and the curses if you disobey the law. Here's what he says in verse 15, verse 36, and verse 64 of Deuteronomy 28. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The Lord will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. So the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and the exile to Babylon was a consequence for disobeying the covenant that God had made with his people. And because we are so far removed from this event, 
It is hard for us to grasp the significance of what it would have meant for the Jewish people to endure the struggles of Egyptian slavery, wander through the wilderness, finally enter and conquer the promised land, build the temple, which was dreamed up by David and executed by Solomon. So in the period of the temple... This is the pinnacle of Israelite fame and Israelite glory. The nation was being blessed. They were flourishing. But with the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem being destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, we have reached the lowest point in the history of Israel's life. But in Jeremiah's prophecy, a spark of hope is mentioned. Here's what he says in Jeremiah 30, verse 3. For behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Now God uses Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, to not only set the Israelites free, but allow them to return to their homeland. And these are the books like Ezra and Nehemiah, where we read of Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, Ezra reestablishing the importance and the foundation of the law. But Esther is a book that talks about those who stayed in Persia. Not those that went back, like in Ezra and Nehemiah, but those that decided, for whatever reason, to stay. But here's what happened. As the Jews who left went back to Jerusalem, and they laid their eyes upon a once beautiful and glorious city that was literally in shambles, they began to wonder if the covenant that God had made with their ancestors many, many years ago still applied to them. And this is where we have what we call the post-exilic books, post-exile. These are the books of Haggai and Zechariah that remind the Israelites that even though you were exiled, now that you have come back, never forget, God is faithful always to his covenant. So yes, The same covenant that God made with your ancestors still applies to you. Even though along the way, you were not always faithful and you were not always obedient. So Haggai and Zechariah, they were meant to encourage the remnant that returned from the exile. But Esther answers the question for those that decided decided to stay in Persia and not return home. But Esther answers it far more discreetly because there is no mention of God. And because there is no mention of God explicitly in this book, some scholars throughout history have doubted the historical accuracy of this book. The reason they doubt it is because they don't understand the very important term genre. There are different types of genre as you read your Bible. Esther is an example of Old Testament historical narrative. 
and historical narrative throughout the Bible is never supposed to be understood as a stream of consciousness accounting the passing of time. It is not a linear from A to B. A great example of this is the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not telling you every single thing that happened from Jesus' public ministry until his death. What do they do in the Gospels? They select, they arrange, and they interpret those events. This is what's happening in the book of Esther. The author of Esther is selecting, arranging, and then interpreting the book for us. So historical narrative, biblically speaking, is not meant to be understood as every single thing that happened accurately in terms of chronology. And there is a big theological point that is laced throughout the book of Esther. And here's the theological point. It is the providence of God. Here's a way to help you understand what providence is. There's an old historic confession known as the Belgic Confession in 1561. Here's what it says. We believe that this good God, after creating all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without God's orderly arrangement. So... If God's sovereignty is his exercise of power over his creation, then God's providence is that God is continually involved with all of his created things. He keeps and maintains them. He cooperates with his created things in every action. And he directs them to fulfill his purposes. So in other words, providence is God's intentional working out of all circumstances in the lives of his children. So keep this doctrine, if you will, in the front of your mind. The providence of God is on display from Esther chapter 1 all the way to the end of the book, even though we never hear the term God mentioned. One commentary says it like this. The great paradox of Esther is that God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. Let me say it again. The great paradox of Esther is that God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. So, do not freak out as you read Esther... Because you don't see God's name explicitly mentioned. Because throughout this book, his purposeful actions to protect and sustain his chosen people is on every single page. So as we examine chapter 1 today and kind of set our course, there's two simple points I want you to remember. Number one, we see glimpses of the pride of man... And number two, glimpses of the providence of God. Glimpses of the pride of man and glimpses of the providence of God. Number one, glimpses of the pride of man. In Esther 1, 
Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name for Xerxes, who is the king in Persia at this time. He reigned from 486 B.C. to 465 B.C. And the text tells us that in the third year of his reign, which would be 483 B.C., he gave a feast for all his officials and all of his servants. Now, more than likely, this feast was to drum up support for a military campaign that Xerxes or Ahasuerus wanted to use against the Greeks. Which, by the way, his father, Darius, which you read about in the book of Daniel, was unsuccessful in his attempt to overthrow the Greeks. So Ahasuerus offers this feast for all of his officials and all of his servants, not because he loves them, not because he's a compassionate king, but because he wants to show off. In verse 4, look at what chapter 1 tells us. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. So for six months, the king was doing everything he could to persuade his officials and his servants, that he was powerful, and that Persia had great riches and might. But he didn't just stop at giving a feast for his officials. He ends up throwing a seven-day feast for everyone in Susa. Verse 5 tells us that. In the garden of the king's palace. Again, why is Ahasuerus doing this? Not because he loved the people. Not because he's a compassionate, generous king who just wants to bless his people. No. He's doing this as a political stunt. He wants to conjure up favor with his people so that they will ultimately pledge their allegiance to him when he is ready to go out in battle. This is a political move to remain in power, to remain in authority. Now, the author of Esther describes for us some of the elaborate measures that Ahasuerus took during this period of feasting and celebration. Look at verses five or 6 through 8. There were white curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, couches of gold and silver on mosaic pavement of porphyry. I don't even know what that is. Marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. The author is painting a picture of excess. This king didn't care about his people. He cared about impressing those around him. He's prone in many ways to the same temptations that we are prone to in 2023. As Americans especially, we have this, I say, sick urge for what is known as what I call the upgrade syndrome. 
And that is we're never content with what we have. Yesterday I contacted AT&T, who is my cell phone carrier. I wanted them to take off this $6 charge every month. That is absolutely pointless. It's supposed to like help you upgrade when you get halfway through making your payments. And as I was on, uh, I don't talk on the phone to customer service people. I chat with them. That's my preferred method. And so I was chatting with this customer service representative. And as I was trying to cancel this $6 wasteful fee that I don't need, the customer service representative was trying to tell me about all of these additional deals. Did you know for only an additional $17 a month, I could add a third line and get a brand new iPhone? And I said, no thanks, just remove the $6 fee. He goes, well, why would you not want a third line for only $17 a month? And I said, because my children are 10, 8, and 5, and we don't need a third line. He was mind-boggled that I wouldn't want a brand new iPhone for only $17 more a month. Well, when you're dirt cheap, $17 a month is a lot of money. So we deal with this upgrade syndrome. It is prevalent and pervasive as Americans all around us. When I look outside in my backyard and I see little spots that are not growing lusciously green and full, I'm prone to want to call up someone and chop down all of the trees within 100 feet of my yard because those dirty, low-down trees suck all of the water away from my precious green grass. And so I want to spend thousands of dollars chopping down these trees, making sure I have the most perfect fertilizer so that every time I look out my backyard, I'm satisfied and content with the beauty of my creation that is my grass. Do you see how the upgrade syndrome plays itself out, not just in our cell phone or in our backyard, but with our homes, with the vehicles that we drive? It's prevalent, and we must, American Christians, we must resist the temptation to have the latest and greatest and the best all of the time. This even happens within the life of churches. When we begin to think to ourselves, if we only had this, people would flock to our church. If we only played this particular song, or if we only had this particular program, or if we did this particular outreach emphasis, if we only had this upgrade in our building to the fastest Wi-Fi, then suddenly all 65, 70,000 people in Dothan would come. So we have to resist this urge to do exactly what Ahasuerus is doing in Esther, showing off for the sake of his own pride and increasing his own authority. So we must resist what I call the upgrade syndrome. But the pride of Ahasuerus in this passage doesn't just end with the feasts that he throws for his officials and his servants and for the people of Susa. It continues when he calls the queen, Vashti, to come before him and show off her beauty for all to see. Now he was not showing her off because he loved her. 
he was showing her off as a way to objectify her. As a way for all of these officials and all of these servants to lend their support to the king before he went out in battle. And thankfully, as we will learn later in the story, Queen Vashti refuses to be used in this way. So the king is enraged with anger. He's not angry because he really wanted to see the beauty of Vashti. No, he's angry because this was a blow to his pride. And more importantly, it was a rejection of his authority in front of all of those that he wanted them to see him as in power and in control. Look at verses 16 and 18. So as a way to seek revenge against Vashti, here's what the king does. He approaches the wise men to ask what her punishment should be. And they say, Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who, in, who are in all the provinces of King Hazarus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. His very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the, qu- the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. So the king and his officials were not as concerned as much about Vashti as much as they were concerned about what it would mean for all of the women in his kingdom. They were fearful that her example would empower women to stand up to their husbands and that they would use Vashti as an example of why it was appropriate to go against What your husband is asking you to to do. So again, this is a threat to the king's power. This is a threat to his authority and control. And if we're not careful, that same fleshly tendency for power and control and authority can be used in ways that are not godly. And it happens... Everywhere we look. It happens to pastors. It happens to CEOs. It happens to husbands. And it can happen to wives. We must remember that Christ ultimately relinquished his authority and his power to die on a cross for people who disobeyed him. Jesus gave up. His power and His authority. Philippians 2 says He emptied Himself. That doesn't mean that He lost His divinity. It means that He freely gave it up. We know Jesus had to die as God in the flesh. We know that. But in Philippians 2, when Paul says Jesus emptied Himself, that means He gave up His authority, His power, 
Why did he do it? For the love of his people. So unlike Ahasuerus, who when he experienced a threat to his power, made sure that it wouldn't happen again, Christ is the opposite of that. Gives up his power so that his subjects can be free in Christ. Look at verse 19. Here's the decision that was made. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So a threat to the king's power led to Vashti's removal of her position as queen. And yet a threat to Christ's power resulting in his crucifixion and ultimately his resurrection leads to justification before God rather than our removal before him. Ahasuerus was so prideful that we're told in verse 22 that he sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. The author of Esther wants us to see in this very first chapter how incredibly arrogant, powerful, controlling human beings can be. And it's manifested in the picture of King Ahasuerus that we read about in this chapter. So we see glimpses of the pride of man. But number two, we see glimpses throughout this chapter and throughout this book. Glimpses of the providence of God. Remember that quote I gave you at the beginning. The great paradox of Esther is that God is omnipotently present even where God is most conspicuously absent. It would be easy to conclude from chapter 1 that God has abandoned his people and that Ahasuerus has been given free will to reign however he wants for his own good pleasure. But a closer look at the whole book of Esther actually shows us a different picture. Here are just a few ways that we already see the providence of God on display in this chapter. Number one, without the elaborate feast that Ahasuerus puts on for his officials and all the people in Susa, which, by the way, if he didn't do that, he would have never asked Queen Vashti to come and present herself before everyone. She would have never refused to come before the king. Thus, she would not have lost her position as queen. And if she doesn't lose her position as queen, then Esther, as we will read later, would never have been able to come and ultimately save God's people from annihilation. Look at Verse 19, here's how that verse ends with the phrase, And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. 
you can circle to another and you can write Esther beside that. Even when we see this elaborate display of arrogance and pomp and materialism and pride, God allows that event to happen, all of it. And when we might be prone to think, God, where is the justice in this? At the very end, Vashti is removed as queen, which will set in motion the process by which Esther will come to the throne. It would also appear that in verse 22, Ahasuerus was trying to make sure that no woman would ever again have any power over a man. And yet, once again, as we will read throughout this story, Esther is the woman that God will use to save his people from mass extinction. So let this particular decree that Ahasuerus passes in Esther 1 remind you of this truth. No matter what legislation is passed in favor of or against Christianity, God is in control of everything that happens to his people. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is ultimately in control of everything that happens to his people? If you believe that, stop losing your mind when legislation goes against Christianity. Now, you can be upset about it. You can pray that God would put Christians in office. We should fight for Christian legislation, but never forget. That sounds like it's awfully close. (laughs) Never forget that ultimately God is in control of what happens to his people. He was in control in Esther, and he is in control today. Let me give you this. This is a passage of Scripture that... God always brings to mind when I think about things that are happening maybe in our country that uh, go against Christianity or that are not helpful to us as Christians. Psalm 2, verses 2 to 4. Here's what it says. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You're going to be okay. Because God provides and takes care of his people. Do you think God was scared of King Ahasuerus? Do you think God was shaking Over King Nebuchadnezzar, he sits in the heavens and laughs as rulers on earth try to enact laws and policies that go against him and his anointed. He holds them all in derision. God is going to accomplish his purposes in the world for his glory regardless of what the circumstances around us would indicate. So as we work our way through this book, here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to be looking for all of the ways that God's providence is on display in the book of Esther, but equally as important. I want you to be looking for God's providence and how he has been orchestrating circumstances in your own life that maybe you were not even aware of. Because here's what happened. God often uses the insurmountable circumstances in our lives to accomplish his will and to draw us into greater communion with him. When Gutenberg invented the printing press, I believe it was 1492, he had no clue that about 25 years later, a man by the name of Martin Luther would nail his 95 theses to a castle door. And those 95 theses, without the printing press, would have never circulated probably much further than Wittenberg. And yet, because of the printing press, by 1517, the 95 Thesis became a best-selling pamphlet that was circulating throughout all of Europe to return the Church of Jesus Christ to the key doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Do you not think that God's providence was on display in the invention of the printing press? More importantly, the birth of Jesus himself into the world came at the most perfect moment in history. So that the reality of the gospel message, his death and his resurrection, could be spread along a Roman road system that had over 250,000 miles of road. If Jesus would have been born during the period of Esther, that would not have been possible. Now, of course, God can do and work in whatever way he wants to. But God knew the sending of Jesus in the exact moment in history when he came. And the story of his perfection and his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension could be spread very quickly and very rapidly because of this Roman road system that, by the way, an evil and cruel empire set up. The Lord is in heaven laughing when earthly rulers go against him and against his anointed. Remember this as we work our way through this book. God does not abandon his people to chance. He uses our experiences and our circumstances to demonstrate his providential care and love for all of his children. Let's pray. Father, as we enter into this time of communion and we think about the death of your son, there is great providence involved in the death of Jesus. It happened at the perfect moment in history for you to receive the glory and the praise for it. So as we spend these next few moments reflecting on the significance of the death of Christ, May we remember that you are in complete control 
over everything that happens. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.